Episode 22 of War in the Book of Mormon, Part 5.3, Just War. In Latin, there are three terms related to just war and just war theory. They are jus ad bellum, or the right way to go to war, or the right justification for going to war, jus in bello, or the right conduct in war, and the newest edition of jus post bellum, or the right way to end a war. These are terms that are debated, studied, and written about as ways to justify the most brutal expressions of human nature, socially sanctioned violence, and specifically, socially sanctioned mass killing. It may make sense that civilized societies would go to extremes to express how conduct of brutality is acceptable. There are God-given and God-derived arguments for seeking justice in war and warfare, which is the conduct of war. This is true for the vast majority of religions. In the Judeo-Christian tradition, just war is expressed in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible in multiple locations. Usually, a war was just and actions in a war were just because God directed the war to happen and the actions to take place. One such example occurs in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 20, verses 10 to 14. Quote, When thou comest nigh unto a city, fight against it, then proclaim peace unto it. And it shall be, if it make thee answer of peace, and open unto thee, then it shall be, that all the people that is found therein shall be tributaries unto thee, and they shall serve thee. And if it will make no peace with thee, but will make war against thee, then thou shalt besiege it. And when the Lord thy God hath delivered it into thine hands, thou shalt smite every male thereof with the edge of the sword. But the women, and the little ones, and the cattle, and all that is in the city, even all the spoil thereof, shalt thou take unto thyself, and thou shalt eat the spoil of thine enemies. Close quote. The ancient Israelites entered war at the direction of God. They had a few rules provided in specific instances, and some that served a more general approach, as noted in this quote from Deuteronomy. In this case, God gave a general rule for much of the ancient world to treat cities that surrendered before a siege commenced more leniently than those that resisted. In this episode of the podcast series, the investigation is more about what the rules for initiating conflict were among the Nephites. From this investigation, I hope to express answers to the following question. When can or should a Christian people take up arms and shed the blood of another people? This is a problem that has plagued followers of Jehovah and or Jesus Christ since the first utterance on Mount Sinai of the words, Thou shalt not kill. In his mortal ministry, Jesus added to this by stating that true believers should love their enemy and pray for those who use and persecute them. How can these teachings be reconciled with the idea of just war? Philosophers, ancient, medieval, and modern, have discussed this point in endless debates and treatises. Moroni, in the Book of Mormon, 
gave an answer more than 70 years before Jesus was born, and Mormon reiterated it hundreds of years after the Savior came and taught the Nephites. Leadership and the concept of just war are presented by Mormon throughout the stories of Moroni, and the role of government and freedom are specifically addressed in the story of the title of liberty. The reasons that specific armed conflict situations were described by Mormon have been and will be expressed in previous and subsequent episodes. Mormon laid out a detailed sequence of just war progression from the era of the Nephites in the land of Nephi to and including the period of Moroni and up to Mormon's own time hundreds of years later. It is through the words and the actions of Moroni that Mormon really teaches what it meant to a Nephite to know when a war was just or not. This detail comes hundreds of years before the works of Augustine of Hippo, who lived from 354 to 430, and whose writings form much of the foundations of European and Christian just war tradition. Moroni articulated a clearer and earlier definition of this important theme in conflict. I want to inform you that all opinions and suppositions expressed in what follows are entirely mine and in no way reflect the positions, opinions, or policies of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Over the progress of this episode, I will lay out the just war tradition of the Book of Mormon in leadership and going to war. I also want to address how this connects to the broader social and political aspects of the Book of Mormon people. Moroni, the leader. Mormon first introduced us to Moroni as a man appointed to be the chief captain of the Nephites, and we get the added detail that he was only 25 when he was appointed to that position in Alma chapter 43, verses 16 to 17. Mormon never states when Moroni was appointed though we know that he must have been appointed prior to the battle at Jershon in 74 BC, or the 18th year of the reign of the judges, though he may have been the Nephite commander at the tremendous battle of the wilderness in 77 BC, or the 15th year of the reign of the judges. As we discussed in episode 19, it is probable that if Moroni had been the leader in the tremendous battle of the wilderness, that Mormon would have said so. Even so, it remains a significant possibility that Moroni was named to command the Nephites shortly after the societally reshaping tremendous battle of the wilderness, rather than immediately preceding the battle of Jershon. Regardless, Moroni's first recorded mission as the Nephite leader dealt with the defense of Jershon and the subsequent battle of Manti already discussed in detail in episode 20. It is fascinating that Mormon did not describe Moroni's personality prior to his leadership and conduct at the Battle of Manti. Instead, he waited to define his character until the issue with Amalickiah and the raising of the title of liberty, which occurred about a year later in 73 BC, or the 19th year of the reign of the judges. It is possible that Mormon wanted to demonstrate Moroni's character before he described it, as any good film director or storyteller, Mormon wanted to show you Moroni before he told you about Moroni. The fact that Moroni was emphasized as a man who led others in war would make it difficult for most readers to believe Mormon's description 
without the story of his willingness to twice stop the killing at the banks of the Sidon River. I want to read Mormon's description of Moroni's character as given in Alma chapter 48, verses 11 to 13 and 16 to 18. Quote, And Moroni was a strong and a mighty man. He was a man of a perfect understanding, yea, a man that did not delight in bloodshed, a man whose soul did joy in the liberty and the freedom of his country and his brethren from bondage and slavery. Yea, a man whose heart did swell with thanksgiving to his God for the many privileges and blessings which he bestowed upon his people, a man who did labor exceedingly for the welfare and safety of his people. Yea, and he was a man who was firm in the faith of Christ, and he had sworn with an oath to defend his people, his rights, and his country, and his religion, even to the loss of his blood, and also that God would make it known unto them whither they should go to defend themselves against their enemies, and by so doing the Lord would deliver them. And this was the faith of Moroni, and his heart did glory in it, not in the shedding of blood, but in doing good, in preserving his people." yea, in keeping the commandments of God, yea, and resisting iniquity. Yea, verily, verily, I say unto you, if all men had been, and were, and ever would be like unto Moroni, behold, the very powers of hell would have been shaken forever, yea, the devil would never have power over the hearts of the children of men. Behold, he was a man like unto Ammon, the son of Mosiah, yea, and even the other sons of Mosiah, yea, and also Alma and his sons, for they were all men of God. Close quote. This is a common description used for Moroni, and one that clearly demonstrates the awe with which the prophet historian general Mormon held his predecessor. It was Moroni that Mormon used as a critical symbol in teaching about the war between the children of God and Satan. Note in what I just read about Moroni that the very description of Moroni also gives a description of what justifies violence or war. So in essence, the description of Moroni is a description of Nephite just war theory or jus ad bellum. It is important to keep Moroni in context. All of what Mormon said of him must be true, but Moroni was also a man not to be trifled with. He got angry. He was immediate and passionate in voicing and acting upon his frustrations. He demonstrated his passion in his comments to Zarahemna when he would not agree to lay down arms, as we discussed in episode 20, and also in two letters that we will discuss in later episodes. One of the letters was to Amaron, the opposing commander and Lamanite king. And it was about an exchange of prisoners. And the other letter was to Pohoran, the Nephite chief judge, about supporting the troops. Both of these letters include very harsh and direct criticisms of both characters, one an enemy and one his superior. Moroni executes, at times literally, judgment without remorse. The use of capital punishment receives later commentary in this very episode. Moroni was a man that would probably receive great criticism in the media of the present world. His surety of purpose and his personal convictions would not be popular today. The fact that he used harsh punishments for those who threatened the stability and safety of the society would be seen as extreme and anti-libertarian. It is useful to cast Moroni in the modern light and see how far the world has moved.
The hearts of many swell at the declarations of Mormon in praising this leader. But how many of those same people criticize other leaders who demonstrate the other traits Moroni possessed? This is probably why Mormon began his praise by saying Moroni was a man of perfect understanding and that he was firm in the faith of Christ, because without these attributes, his other personality traits would have made him like many less desirable people throughout history. Just War Matthew Hilton and Neil Flinders addressed the ideological contention happening in the Book of Alma in their chapter titled, The Impact of Shifting Cultural Assumptions in the Military Policies Directing Armed Conflict Reported in the Book of Mormon, in the book Warfare in the Book of Mormon. They say the following, and I quote from page 241 of the book, The fundamental ideological issue motivating the political and legal conflicts in the Book of Alma is whether or not a cultural heritage premised on the existence of a divinely based higher law would be allowed to remain dominant in Nephite society. Close quote. When is it a correct principle to go to war with another people? This is a common dilemma and has been part of Christian discussion since the advent of predominantly Christian kingdoms. Unlike the medieval states of Europe, who had to grapple with man's understanding of just war and come to a reasoned approach, the Nephites were blessed from the beginning to be led and instructed with the word of God through prophets. Early on in the Book of Mormon, Jerem gave the reasons for Nephite success in battle and the initial indication of when it was appropriate in the eyes of God to shed the blood of a fellow child of God. I quote from Jerem chapter 1 verse 7, And it came to pass that they came many times against us, the Nephites, to battle. But our kings and our leaders were mighty men in the faith of the Lord, and they taught the people the ways of the Lord. Wherefore, we withstood the Lamanites and swept them away out of our lands and began to fortify our cities or whatsoever place of our inheritance. Close quote. The notion of a people who follow the teachings of the Lord being allowed to defend themselves to the point of killing others is a consistent theme throughout the early parts of the Book of Mormon. It is stated over and over in the terms, quote, in the strength of the Lord, close quote or similar phrases in the Words of Mormon 1, verse 14, Mosiah 9, 17, Mosiah 10, 10, and Alma 2, 18, as just a few examples. Mormon illuminated Nephite just war doctrine by explaining some of the acceptable reasons to go to battle. During the fourth defense of the Nephite colony, which is during the Zenophite period, Mormon explained in Mosiah chapter 20, verse 11, and I quote, And it came to pass that the people of Limhi began to drive the Lamanites before them. Yea, they were not half so numerous as the Lamanites, but they fought for their lives and for their wives and for their children. Therefore, they exerted themselves and like dragons did they fight, close quote. Later, Mormon explains that the Nephites were justified because of the known intent of the Amlicites, as recorded in Alma chapter 2, verse 12. In another case, the reader is told that Ammon only attacked those who raised their arms against him in Alma chapter 17, verse 38, giving implied consent to the idea of defense as a legitimate reason for killing another person. 
The expansion of reasons becomes nearly complete as Moroni gathers and inspires the people of the land of Manti to come to arms. I quote from Alma chapter 43 verse 26. And he caused that all the people in that quarter of the land should gather themselves together to battle against the Lamanites, to defend their lands and their country, their rights and their liberties. Therefore, they were prepared against the time of the coming of the Lamanites. Close quote. All of this buildup comes to a complete definition during the same Battle of Manti, as Mormon explained the inspiration that led the Nephites to withstand the tremendous efforts of the Lamanites. Quoting from Alma 43, verses 45 to 47. Nevertheless, the Nephites were inspired by a better cause, for they were not fighting for monarchy nor power, but they were fighting for their homes and their liberties, their wives and their children, and their all, yea, for their rites of worship and their church. And they were doing that which they felt was the duty which they owed to their God, For the Lord had said unto them, and also unto their fathers, that inasmuch as ye are not guilty of the first offense, neither the second, ye shall not suffer yourselves to be slain by the hands of your enemies. And again, the Lord has said that ye shall defend your families even unto bloodshed. Therefore, for this cause were the Nephites contending with the Lamanites to defend themselves and their families and their lands, their country and their rights and their religion. Close quote. This is a God-given definition of just war. Nothing like this exists in the Bible or any other writings of the apostles or the early Christian church fathers of the first four centuries of Christianity. The declaration coming from the Book of Mormon is that God does not simply condone, but commands, ye shall, that the Nephites are to defend themselves against the attacks and not suffer themselves to be destroyed. Mormon reiterated this definition later in his explanation of Moroni's character in Alma 48.14. It is this command that makes the act and covenant of the people of Ammon so extraordinary. The people were not simply covenanting to defy basic rules of natural survival, but to also put aside the approval and command of God to prove that they sincerely desired to repent and change who they were and that God approved through his prophet of this covenant. It was truly remarkable. It is very clear in the Nephite record that the Lord defined what was acceptable in terms of resorting to warfare and the shedding of human blood. The final example of this doctrine came in the living example of Mormon as he resigned his position as chief captain of the Nephite armies. As the Nephites elected to violate the principle of staying on the strategic defensive, Mormon's refusal was not a refusal to lead any offensive operations, as he had led several attacks to reclaim lost cities and lands. But his people were now swearing to attack the Lamanites in the land of the Lamanites. I quote from Mormon chapter 3, verses 8 to 16. And in the three hundred and sixty and second year, they did come down again to battle, and we did beat them again, and did slay a great number of them and their dead were cast into the sea. And now, because of this great thing which my people, the Nephites, had done, they began to boast in their own strength, and began to swear before the heavens that they would avenge themselves of the blood of their brethren, who had been slain by their enemies. And they did swear by the heavens, and also by the throne of God, 
that they would go up to battle against their enemies and would cut them off from the face of the land. And it came to pass that I, Mormon, did utterly refuse from this time forth to be a commander and a leader of this people because of their wickedness and abomination. Behold, I had led them, notwithstanding their wickedness, I had led them many times to battle and had loved them according to the love of God, which was in me with all my heart and my soul had been poured out in prayer unto my God all the day long for them. Nevertheless, it was without faith because of the hardness of their hearts. And thrice have I delivered them out of the hands of their enemies and they have repented not of their sins. And when they had sworn by all that had been forbidden them by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that they would go up unto their enemies to battle and avenge themselves of the blood of their brethren, behold, the voice of the Lord came unto me, saying, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay. And because this people repented not after I had delivered them, behold, they shall be cut off from the face of the earth. And it came to pass that I utterly refused to go up against mine enemies, And I did even as the Lord had commanded me, and I did stand as an idle witness to manifest unto the world the things which I saw and heard according to the manifestations of the Spirit, which had testified of things to come. Consider what was being sworn to. One can read in verse 9 that the Nephites were swearing to take on the role of God. And in verse 10, they were swearing something like advocating a form of genocide, something that the Lamanites had previously attempted. These crimes were sufficient to require Mormon's resignation, as this was a serious conflict of conscience. The issue is that solely punitive attacks constitute vengeance, and that is clearly explained as the purview of the Lord. Challenges to Political Order Another point that justifies violent opposition was the transformation of the political order in opposition to the will of the people, in a word, usurpation. The movement from a dynastic monarchy to a semi-dynastic magistracy seemed to be disruptive to the domestic Nephite political dynamic, as was discussed in episodes 16 and 18. This was a change that was challenged early on in the process by Amlesi and led to a series of battles. This continued to be an issue with the rise of Amalekiah, and as we will see in a later episode, became an even bigger issue in the activity of men referred to as kingmen. It is always an uncertain process to attempt to project motivations backwards onto historic figures. Mormon provided some information on the motivation of Amlesi, and later on each of the key agitators, As will be discussed in future episodes, the organization of the Nephite government served as one of the most consistent reasons for conflict among the Nephites themselves. I quote now from Alma chapter 45, verses 20 to 22. And now it came to pass, in the commencement of the nineteenth year of the reign of the judges over the people of Nephi, that Helaman went forth among the people to declare the word unto them. For behold, because of their wars with the Lamanites and the many little dissensions and disturbances which had been among the people, it became expedient that the word of God should be declared among them, yea, and that a regulation should be made throughout the church. Therefore Helaman and his brethren went forth to establish the church again in all the land, yea, in every city throughout all the land which was possessed by the people of Nephi, 
And it came to pass that they did appoint priests and teachers throughout all the land over all the churches. Close quote. Following the victories at Jershon and Manti in 74 BC, the religious leaders followed their standard pattern of teaching and bringing people unto Christ, both as a religious and a political necessity. However, this time, those appointed to regulate the church and to bring a greater sense of stability to the state did not follow the previous pattern. Rather, they rebelled and followed someone other than the high priest of the church. We get this detail as I continue to quote from Alma chapter 45, now verses 23 and 24. And now it came to pass that after Helaman and his brethren had appointed priests and teachers over the churches, that there arose a dissension among them, and they would not give heed to the words of Helaman and his brethren. But they grew proud, being lifted up in their hearts, because of their exceedingly great riches. Therefore they grew rich in their own eyes, and would not give heed to their words, to walk uprightly before God. Close quote. The rebellion grew as a result of personal pride. The confusion, if there is any, of the use of the words they and them and their in both verses comes from the two groups, Helaman and his brethren and the priests and teachers discussed in this passage. The process of dissension grew from one of pride through wealth to the idea of elevation of self, sufficient to change the government. These events coalesced around the person of Amalickiah. Amalickiah is one of the most important people in the Book of Mormon. He is not the worst of the bad guys. He didn't rule the longest, capture the most Nephite cities, lead to the deaths of the most Nephites, or win the most battles. In fact, the person who holds those records goes nameless in the Book of Mormon. Yet we know more about Amalickiah than almost any other person discussed in the entire Book of Mormon with, interestingly enough, the exception of Moroni. Why is that? I have my theory, which I will share, but I want listeners to know that we will devote an entire episode to a comparison of Amalickiah and Moroni's leadership in a couple of episodes. The reason that I believe Amalickiah figures so prominently in the Book of Mormon is that he serves as the Satan archetype for Mormon. Remember that Mormon shows us as much as he tells us his teachings. What he shows us in Amalickiah is how Satan operates. Again, we will discuss this more in a couple of episodes. Back to a discussion on Amalickiah challenging the political order and leading to this question of just war. I quote at some length now from Alma chapter 46, verses 1 through 7. And it came to pass that as many as would not hearken to the words of Helaman and his brethren, were gathered together against their brethren. And now, behold, they were exceedingly wroth, insomuch that they were determined to slay them. Now the leader of those who were wroth against their brethren was a large and a strong man, and his name was Amalickiah. And Amalickiah was desirous to be a king. And those people who were wroth were also desirous that he should be their king. And they were the greater part of them the lower judges of the land, and they were seeking for power. And they had been led by the flatteries of Malachiah, that if they would support him and establish him to be their king, that he would make them rulers over the people. Thus, they were led away by Amalickiah to dissensions, notwithstanding the preaching of Helaman and his brethren, 
yea, notwithstanding their exceedingly great care over the church, for they were high priests over the church. And there were many in the church who believed in the flattering words of Amalickiah. Therefore they dissented even from the church, and thus were the affairs of the people of Nephi exceedingly precarious and dangerous, notwithstanding their great victory which they had had over the Lamanites, and their great rejoicings which they had had because of their deliverance by the hand of the Lord. Amalickiah rallied the people around his promises of a better life if they supported him. It is unclear why he thought he could get away with this, but clearly he did, and he raised a significant rebellion, but one that appeared to be somewhat covert. I say that as Moroni had time to don his armor and to present the opposite point of view, as we will see. I imagine that the thousands who fought for and with Moroni at Manti and Jershon, as well as those who thought fondly of the principles he espoused, rallied to Moroni, and he brought them together in a covenant. This is simple opposition to the desire for dictatorial powers that Amalickiah was seeking. The Title of Liberty The simplest expression of Nephite just war comes in the written words of the Title of Liberty. This was more than a simple declaration. It was asked of the people to affirm this declaration through personal covenant. The title of liberty served as a document of sorts that became the foundation principle for inspiring and justifying action until the period immediately preceding the coming of Christ. The preaching of the title of liberty is one of the most commonly told stories of the Book of Mormon. It is a story worthy of telling as it demonstrates the freedoms of the Nephites as well as the capabilities of the two groups in question. Moroni was in immediate opposition to the idea of a king, and he acted to prevent this. Previously, I explained that in Nephi just war tradition, there were primary reasons for war believed to be acceptable to the Lord. These reasons were what Moroni wrote upon his torn coat. To clarify, in response to the actions of Amalickiah, Moroni used his coat as a sort of flag to inspire people. This is what he did and what he wrote, as I quote from Alma, chapter 46, verse 12. And it came to pass that he rent his coat, and he took a piece thereof and wrote upon it, In memory of our God, our religion, and freedom, and our peace, our wives, and our children. And he fastened it upon the end of a pole. Close quote. Moroni used the words to inspire his supporters and encourage others to rally against those favoring a king. Moroni offered a positive vision to motivate his peers in a communal effort, as recorded in Alma chapter 46, verses 18 to 20. And I quote, And he said, Surely God shall not suffer that we, who are despised because we take upon us the name of Christ, shall be trodden down and destroyed until we bring it upon us by our own transgressions. And when Moroni had said these words, he went forth among the people, waving the rent part of his garment in the air, that all might see the writing which he had written upon the rent part, and cry with a loud voice, saying, Behold, whosoever will maintain this title upon the land, let them come forth in the strength of the Lord, and enter into a covenant that they will maintain their rights and their religion, that the Lord God may bless them. Close quote. 
Moroni's efforts were introspective and recalled to mind the covenants and teachings of prophets past. The writing on his banner was also a part of this, as he was reminding them of what was worthy of fighting for in the mind of God. He encouraged his fellow Nephites to stand firm in maintaining what God had given them. There was no denigration of the opponent or of the opposing ideas, but a reminder of what was right and proper. As they rallied, he had them enter into a covenant. It is probable that this was a covenant similar to one that I suppose Moroni had his soldiers take prior to battle. I suppose this because Moroni had a tradition of covenant-making with enemies and friends, and it seems natural that he would have sought to bind his soldiers to their duty through covenants. I want to emphasize that this is not based off of anything recorded in the Book of Mormon, but based off of personal supposition. The covenant the Nephites made with respect to the title of liberty was one of obedience to the commandments of God, and that if they were not obedient, that God would destroy them, as explained in Alma 46.22. The title of liberty represents a document of political significance. This was the first binding covenant to form a state that was not loyal to tribes or families. The only reference to family in the covenant is to the nuclear family. It could be argued that Moroni was trying to break the Nephites away from their tribal loyalties and establish a loyalty to the state as a conceptual entity in a way that the establishment of magistrates failed to do. The covenant associated with the title of liberty was the basis for the Nephite state as it existed from this time of 73 BC until the dissolution of that state to tribal rivalries at about 33 AD or immediately prior to the visit of Jesus Christ. This meant that the title of liberty was the binding government document, in air quotes, if you will, for about 106 years. Military Tribunal and Capital Punishment Capital punishment was a significant part of the Nephite judicial system. As was previously discussed, Alma had the Antichrist murderer, Nehor, put to death, through being cast from, or jumping from, a precipice. Previous to that, the Xenophites conducted a trial and legally executed the prophet Abinadi, and the people of Ammonihah executed those who were believers in the teachings of Alma and Amulek. Though the last two instances receive a negative presentation in the Book of Mormon record, it is never indicated that the practice was against the law but rather that it was wrongly executed in the cases of killing the righteous. Mormon provides a very utilitarian view to the crime of treason and the appropriate punishments in the quote from Alma chapter 46, verses 30 and 34 to 35. Now Moroni thought it was not expedient that the Lamanites should have any more strength. Therefore, he thought to cut off the people of Amalickiah, or to take them and bring them back, and put Amalickiah to death. Yea, for he knew that he would stir up the Lamanites to anger against them, and cause them to come to battle against them. And this he knew that Amalickiah would do, that he might obtain his purposes. Now Moroni, being a man who was appointed by the chief judges and the voice of the people, therefore he had power according to his will with the armies of the Nephites to establish and to exercise authority over them. And it came to pass 
that whomsoever of the Amalekites that would not enter into a covenant to support the cause of freedom, that they might maintain a free government, he caused to be put to death. And there were but few who denied the covenant of freedom. Close quote. Moroni had previously led the Nephites in a war that was the direct result of Nephite dissensions, and his opposing general at Manti had probably been a Nephite dissenter. Moroni understood the problems caused by dissension and rebellion. The growing trend from Moroni's perspective was that most wars between the Nephites and Lamanites were inspired by Nephite dissenters. This included the tremendous battle of the wilderness, which I have supposed was a formative event for Moroni. In the preceding verses of the quoted material, there is information that the chief captain was given the powers of a magistrate in time of war. This was given to him by the senior governing body of the Nephites and by popular majority. Moroni followed a similar course in dealing with a later manifestation of these same kingmen, or people who adopted the same appellation and sought the same end, rule by monarchy. We will refer to this later, but it was at another transition between chief judges, this time from Nephiha to Pahoran, at about 67 BC. At that point in the story, the Nephites had just completed a battle with the people of Morianton. Amalickiah was leading a massive Lamanite army on an offensive campaign along the eastern shore of Nephite lands that captured six cities, and there was a rebellion of people calling themselves kingmen who refused to fight against the invading Lamanite armies. It is in this environment that Moroni sent a popular petition requesting the governor to give him the authority to put to death those who would dissent from the government as recorded in Alma 51.15. In times of crisis and for specific crimes, the death penalty was carried out. Moroni, as the chief captain of all the Nephite armies, was granted in time of war the power to conduct military summary trials and execute those convicted of capital crimes. In peacetime, this authority needed the express consent of the chief magistrate of the Nephites. The law of war was made quite explicit for the people of Nephi. The title of liberty is the document that captures the source of legal application of violence, defense of their homes, persons, family, and religion. Defense was the operative word. The Book of Mormon provides a detailed discussion of justifications for going to war, or use ad bellum. We have seen in previous episodes a concern about the use of stratagems, or the proper conduct of war, use in bello. This aspect of just war never receives as detailed a discussion in the Book of Mormon record as does the discussion on going to war. However, there are indications that it did matter how the armies fought and engaged one another. The way of fighting changed as wars lengthened and different stratagems seemed to have become acceptable over time. Note this as we continue to have detailed discussions on the battles to come. I believe that Mormon has three great sermons in the Book of Mormon. One is the Battle of Manti, which we have already addressed in detail. The second is the Amalickiahite War, which we are addressing in this part of the podcast series, and the following part. The third is the Gadianton Robber War which will be addressed in a subsequent part of the podcast series. In the next episode, we will address the Amalekiahite era of warfare and the details that the Book of Mormon record reveals about the structure of the Nephite military during this period. 
I invite you to reach out and ask questions and send comments to me on Facebook at War in the Book of Mormon or at War in the Book of Mormon at gmail.com. All one word, War in the Book of Mormon at gmail.com. Until next time.